The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here's your top five at five. The market rally rolls on with the S&P posting its best two-day gain in roughly two years, but futures right now suggesting stocks may take a bit of a breather today. Energy is in focus. OPEC is preparing its first in-person meeting in two years, mulling dramatic output cuts. We are live on the ground in Vienna with the latest there. And signed, sealed, and delivered. Elon Musk backtracking on his bid to abandon his takeover of Twitter, now saying he'll go through with that deal. UK Prime Minister Liz Truss set to address fellow conservatives amid growing dissent within the ranks over the fallout over her tax cut proposals. And then Amazon becoming the latest big tech giant to halt hiring amid growing worries around the economy. It's Wednesday, October 5th. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I am Dominic Chu at CNBC Global Headquarters. Brian Sullivan, as you can see there, is live in Vienna, Austria at the OPEC Plus Summit set to begin later on this morning. We've got a lot more to come from Brian in just a few moments. But first, let's kick off the hour with a check on markets in the futures picture right now. You can see some modest losses implied at the opening bell. Those modest losses have now accelerated just a bit here. The Dow is now implied lower by 230 points. The S&P lower by roughly 29 to 30 points. And then a 92-point decline for the Nasdaq implied at the opening bell. Markets, though, are coming off another solid session yesterday. The Dow jumping more than 800 points. The S&P and Nasdaq both climbing more than 3%. Those two straight days of stock gains coming on the back of a pullback in bond yields. Checking now, though, those Treasury yields are ticking slightly higher. The 10-year note yield just about 3.72%, and the two-year note yield higher at 4.13%. On cryptocurrencies, we're seeing some Bitcoin and movement in Bitcoin and Ether to the downside. Right now, Bitcoin prices just about flat on the session, 20124 Ether prices down one half of 1%, call it 13.43 and change. And getting a check on your morning's big money mover, we're watching shares of Twitter surging after Elon Musk's surprise decision to reverse course and revive his deal to buy Twitter. Twitter saying Musk plans to close the purchase at his original offer of $54.20 per share. Sources tell CNBC that deal could happen as soon as this Friday. Twitter shares are down Half a percent pre-market right now, but it's $51.76, $54.20 is the takeover price. But we did see a 20-some percent jump in yesterday's session on the heels of many of those reports. Let's now go worldwide. Juliana Tattlebaum is live in our London newsroom with a look at the action overseas. That's a mixed picture, Juliana. 
Hey, Dom, good morning. Well, in Europe, it is a mixed picture. As for Asia, it was green across the board. A bit of a, a catch-up trade, especially for Hong Kong. This was the outperformer, the shining star of the Asian session. The Hang Seng Index gaining nearly 6%. That was the best trading day in almost seven weeks. And I say a catch-up trade. The Hong Kong market was closed for a one-day holiday. So investors making up for lost time after the mammoth rally that we've seen stateside. In particular, we saw strong demand for energy, IT, and financial stocks in Hong Kong. Here in Europe, a little bit of a different story. We are seeing some profit-taking in Europe. It is red across the board for the European equities. But again, this is after a major rally here. European shares are up more than 5% in three days coming into today's session. We're keeping a very close eye on EU leaders. They're preparing for a summit in Prague tomorrow. And lots of hope and pressure building around more of a response to the energy crisis And just this morning, we got news that there is political agreement among EU leaders to move ahead with the next round of sanctions against Russia. Tom, back over to you. Juliana Tattlebaum, live in London with the latest there. Thank you very much. Let's turn now to the oil market and what has been what is going to be likely a historic OPEC plus meeting. The group expected to dramatically slash production as it comes together for its first in-person meeting in roughly two years. Crude prices right now, you can see U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate down about 50 cents or so, $86.06, that's half of 1% decline. World benchmark ice Brent crude futures, $91.43, off about one half of 1% as well. As we showed you, Brian Sullivan is live at OPEC headquarters in Vienna, Austria, with more on what to expect out of this meeting. We heard one million barrel possible cut, then it was one and a half million barrels cut. Now they're saying it's two million barrels a day that could be cut. Brian, you're, you keep pointing. You're bidding me up higher here. What's going on? <laughs> two million is the latest word from some delegates, from some analysts that I trust here. We'll see again. This is all chatterdom, so we'll have to wait and see what the actual decision is. But the numbers, they continue to go up. Okay, so oil is down right now. I'll explain why in just a second. But you can see here that, as you noted, we are in person. Juliana just told you about some of these price caps and these sanctions going forward, which I think is particularly interesting here. And you can see security is starting to grow because the Russian delegation led by Alexander Novak is expected to attend in person. Remember, he's not just energy minister. He is the deputy prime minister of Russia. He'd be the highest ranking Russian official to visit Europe since the war began and the sanctions were kicked on. So security in a couple hours it's going to get a lot tighter here. Okay, the price of oil is down right now. Why? When they may have this big cut, Dom? Well, it's because there is concern that if we see these sanctions coming on, maybe Russia starts to flood the market with oil. One of the ideas behind this, this reported cut is perhaps spike prices in the near term so Russia can maybe sell more. Because remember, they're selling it at a discount anyway. Raise that up. Make a little more ahead of those sanctions. So many fast-moving parts here from, from OPEC so far, Dom. Of course, the White House... Not happy about this meeting, not happy about the proposed cuts. There have been some stories about Janet Yellen and others potentially calling around ministers. Not sure I believe those stories as well, but I will know, I will say this, that there have been some White House officials which are maybe talking to Saudi Arabia and saying, hey, listen, we have a relationship. Do you want to damage that relationship potentially any further by making a cut? We're going to ultimately see what happens here, Dom. But again, one and a half to two million barrels per day is what everybody is talking about. That would be one of the biggest cuts, the biggest, since COVID hit. We'll be here all day, all morning on WEX, and probably into the night from OPEC's headquarters in Vienna, Austria.
You know, Brian, Brian, it's it's not necessarily as big as the United Nations, but there are a lot of countries involved here, a lot of voices, a lot of views, a lot of different reasons to act the way that they do. So so is this expected to be a quick and easy meeting or are we, or are we expecting a lot of this drama and this kind of uh, debate to play out over several days now? Right now, I hope not. <laughs> right now, the talk is that the decision may be made, that the meeting could be kind of quick. The meeting is scheduled to begin at 8 a.m. Eastern time, 2 p.m. here, a press conference once they, of course, finish that decision. Now, we've seen it go multiple days. Let's hope that's not the case. We're hearing everything that basically it's probably maybe buttoned up, signed, sealed, and delivered, and that hopefully we can get that decision quick and then go to the press conference where we can ask perhaps Abdulaziz, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman what the decision-making was behind whatever decision is that they might make. You referenced the U.N., and I'll knock the U.N. a bit, Dom, because this may be bigger than the U.N. I'll tell you why. The U.N., you get people that come in, they talk, they go home. This is trillions of dollars of economic output that is either going to be added or taken away from various economies. Literally, if, you, if we do a million and a half to two million barrels a day, every single day, price of oil goes up five or ten bucks over the next couple of months, we're talking about shifting trillions in economic activity, potentially to the benefit of the United States. Remember, prices go up. Maybe it'll finally entice some of those producers in the U.S. and the Permian to spend a little more. They can't find labor, but as we all know, at uh, certain amounts of uh, price per hour, labor may indeed be available. So, again, a lot going on here. We've got uh, Halima Croft coming up in about 20 minutes live with me outside OPEC, Tom. Always, it's always interesting, Brian, to, to think about this notion that the yeah. U.S. is the biggest producer of hydrocarbons out there. So these prices go up. Maybe we do benefit. Brian, thank you very much. We'll see you in just a few moments Thanks. here with those, with those big interviews. Uh, let's check now, though, on some of the other morning's top stories. And Silvana Hanau is here with those. Silvana. Hey, Dom, good morning. Well, Amazon is pulling the plug on its video calling device for kids. The e-commerce giant announcing it will no longer sell its Amazon Glow. The device combined video calling with games and was revealed just more than a year ago at Amazon's annual hardware event. The move comes as the company curbs spending across amid fears of an economic downturn. Celsius has lost another top executive. The bankrupt crypto lending platform's co-founder and chief strategy officer, S. Daniel Leon, has stepped down according to sources and internal documents seen by CNBC. Leon's exit comes a week after the company's CEO, Alex Mashinsky, resigned. And Juul is expected to start talks with lenders as soon as this week for financing to get the company through a potential bankruptcy filing. According to reports, the company has received inquiries from lenders and will soon request financing options. Previous reports suggested Juul was working with its legal advisors on options that included a bankruptcy filing amid a dispute with the FDA over whether it can keep its e-cigarettes on the market, Dom. All right, Silvana Hanel, thank you for those headlines. We'll see you in the later on in the show. When we come back here, the markets are rallying, but the rally looks at risk right now as futures suggest an end to two straight days worth of big gains. We lay out whether stocks are finding fresh legs or this is just maybe perhaps another bear market bounce. Plus, Elon Musk reversing course, saying he'll go through with his deal for Twitter. The Wall Street Journal's Tim Higgins pulls back the curtain on Musk's abrupt decision and maybe the motivations behind it. And later on, not going anywhere. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen throwing cold water on reports that she is eyeing a potential exit. We've got a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. 
Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Futures right now suggesting that the big two-day rally we've seen in stocks might be over. The Dow is implied lower by roughly 230-some points right now. But your next guest says, despite the continued volatility, long-term investors can start to get comfortable with these current market valuations at depressed levels. Delano Sapporo is the founder and CEO of New Street Advisors Group. He's also a CNBC contributor, seen many times across many programs on our air, including this early hour. Delano, thank you very much for joining us here. Let's talk about your comfort level. Why do you feel like this is the time that you can start legging into markets? Thank you, Dom, and good morning. I, I think, you know, we can be comfortable, but not too comfortable. This two-day rally, as you mentioned, is, is, is something that is, you know, welcomed, but um, I don't think it's going to sustain, especially if you look at Q4 trends and maybe Q1. But um, as you were mentioning, investors can start getting comfortable because We've talked about a lot what's going on with, obviously, Fed policy, and I think that a few reasons why um, investors should look closely um, at the data that the Fed is going to be, you know, obviously uh, tearing over is um, expectations for inflation, obviously job market. And some of those are showing signs of potentially making a turn, um, maybe a quarter, quarter two out after more data comes out, obviously lagging data. So investors can look at that. They can also look at valuation um, on the S&P 500. If you look at Ford um, PE being about 15 times. Um, over the past few years, that's obviously below what we've re- really seen. So you can get comfortable legging into the market at those levels, um, and especially if you're looking at some of the companies that have, especially growth and tech, some of the areas that we hold, obviously, that have been really, really devalued. Those are, there's some opportunities there for investors as well. You know, you know Delano, one of the things that we, we've been noticing here, me specifically, is, is that you know, over the course of the last 10, 12 years, the consensus trade on any pullback has always been to buy mega cap technology or technology adjacent yep. type companies. We've mentioned over the last couple of weeks here that, that we've seen Microsoft and Alphabet, the parent company of Google, heading towards 52 week lows. Those are among some of the stocks that have seen the biggest gains over the last two days as the market has bounced. Do you believe that big tech trade is still in play? Should you be buying given the weakness that we've seen or is this something where interest rates going higher it's just going to really take a, a lot of the steam away from that trade in the future. I think it's going to, the, the trade is going to be there still in the future. I think in the short term, as you mentioned, interest rates going higher. The stocks have already been beating up. They've been going towards uh, their 52-week lows. Um, even with this two-day rally, they're still, the Nasdaq is still off around 30%, I believe. And so I think, you know, 
those trades will be will be fine in the long term. And I think a few of those reasons you mentioned uh, with Big Connect, you're getting some th situations, dividend yield, you're getting some, in all situations, um, good, strong cash flow. Um, and you're getting companies that I think are deflationary in the long term for, if you look at something like Tesla and things that will happen in, in the future. Um, so I still like that trade. As you mentioned, over the past 10 years, it's always been the growth of trade has, has outpaced the value, value trade. And it's outside of, you know, what, what's happened recently. Um, that's been the trade. And I still think that's the trade going forward. And that's why we're holding we're over eight many of those companies. So so what what then is is on the shopping list then? Where, where, where are these opportunities with the Nasdaq down 30-some percent, the S&P kind of in this bear market zone that we've been hanging out in for a while. What, is it energy? Is, is, is it those tech stocks we talked about? Are there places in other staples companies, uh, even though they may be, in some cases, more expensive on, a, on an earnings basis, given that people have been pouring into them for the past several months? Yep. Yep, and we hold, hold a little bit of energy, obviously underweight uh, in, relative to what we, other things we hold. And, and I think the people that have been holding energy obviously have been winning all of 2022, 2021, and, and, and have, have actually had great gains from that. So I think going forward, you can kind of tear it out. Yes, as you mentioned, staples, healthcare, those are great areas to be in for investors. Um, I do think when you see big legs down, when you saw what Tesla dropped on delivery, those are opportunities for investors. They believe in those assets long term to buy. But um, you, it's kind of tearing it down. I think you would take uh, investors should look at big legs down and, and, and growth and, and, and tech companies as well as Sticking with their staples, sticking with consumer staples, we realize that the Fed is still going to be on their pace for the next couple of quarters, as well as just the general economy is going to be pulling back the next couple of quarters. So those are areas for investors to, to be in. All right. Delano Sapporo at New Street. Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate it. Still on deck for the show, U.K. Prime Minister Liz Truss trying to shore up political support from her own party as she faces growing fiscal fallout over her tax cut plans. We'll go live overseas for the latest on her plea to allies. Today's big number, $2 billion. That's how much VC funding carbon technology companies received in the second quarter, according to data by PitchBook. That's the strongest quarter ever. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. We want to take you to the United Kingdom, where Prime Minister Liz Truss is set to speak at the annual conference by Britain's Conservative Party. Her keynote address is coming as she faces growing political fallout over her government's sudden U-turn on a proposal to cut the top tax rate of income taxes for payers on the wealthy side of things. Arabile Goumade is live in London with more on this. And Arabile, what is the prime minister expected to say with this type of keynote address. Yeah, so quite a few permutations coming to the fore here, Dom. One, she's uh, been speaking quite vehemently about how uh, the cutting of that top rate, that 45% tax rate, uh, and now doing away with cutting that away, 
has meant that the uh, party has had to now uh, lose that one part of the distractions that perhaps were a part of a bigger package that she had tried to put together around 43 billion pounds worth uh, of uh, of, uh, packages that were aimed at stimulating the economy, getting growth up to around 2.5% and even getting businesses to invest a little bit more in the local economy. So she's probably going to pander to that base and try to ensure that people understand that there is a greater scheme to all of this. She's also going to tell them why she needed to act so quickly. It's been today is a month since she's taken uh, the helm then of Prime Minister, that's Liz Truss here in the UK. And that means that she's done so much in that time by making these quick announcements but not getting the right estimates from the Office of uh, 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 Responsibility as well then, just trying to get a sense of what would the permutations be for the economy if they continue to borrow money for those tax cuts which she had put in place. So a lot of that messaging is going to have to come through now and give us clearer sense of what is to come from here. Dom. Uh, Arabile, we're showing charts right now of the pound of, of, of gilt yields, your equivalent of treasury bonds out there. The pound right now is at a dollar fourteen and change. And the reason why I bring that up is because it now is returned to levels it was at before that big announcement by Truss's administration about those tax cuts and spending plans, which means the market has kind of gotten back to where it was before all of this happened. So are markets in your in your part of the world still anxious about what Truss is going to say or, or are we kind of right back to square one again? Yeah, so I suppose the fact that she did away with the cut of that top tax rate did bring a sense of calm. But out of the £45 billion package that was put together by that mini-budget, the top tax cut was only worth £2 billion. So it's a bit surprising that that took off so much, right? But... As you said, the pound is doing better uh, in that context and now sitting back to uh, pre-mini-budget levels. And I think the market is saying, well, the Bank of England had to intervene, of course, by putting through a a, a total package of around £65 billion back into the market by buying those gilts so that the yields wouldn't get out uh, of control. Interest rates were scheduled to hit around 6%. That number has come down quite significantly. But... Markets will probably be cautiously optimistic with a sense of nervousness that if she does say something today that offers a sense that those tax cuts would still come back, sure. it may indeed still offer up a little bit of weakness for the pound. All, right. All eyes on Liz Truss right now. Arabile Goumide in London, thank you very much. Still on deck for the show. Bracing for steep production cuts by OPEC and its partner countries, the group is expected to curb output for crude amid a pullback in prices globally. Our Brian Sullivan is live at OPEC headquarters in Vienna, Austria, in the lead-up to that big meeting. Brian. Yeah, Dom, I mean, listen, here we are, and here's the question. Is OPEC, led by Saudi Arabia, and OPEC Plus, led by Russia, are they about ready to make one of the biggest oil production cuts in modern history? They are, says Salima Croft, and she's your guest on Worldwide Exchange. Next. Hitting the pause button on the market's rally. Futures pointing towards a lower open after the S&P notches its biggest two-day gain in almost two years. Oil prices in a holding pattern ahead of that big key OPEC meeting. Steep output cuts are expected. Our own Brian Sullivan is on the ground in Vienna, Austria with the very latest from the oil cartel. And Elon Musk reversing course, looking to go through with this deal to take Twitter private, putting an end to a months-long legal fight and sending the social platform shares spiking in a big way yesterday. 
It's Wednesday, October 5th. You are watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Dominic Chu, live here at CNBC Global Headquarters. But Brian Sullivan, as you can see on your screen there, is live at the OPEC Plus conference in Vienna, Austria. We will check in with Brian and a special guest in just a few moments. But first, let's get right to the markets and your money as we are coming up to the halfway point in the 5 a.m. hour in the New York time zone. Futures indicating a 237-point drop for the Dow, a 29-point drop for the S&P, and a roughly 86-point drop for the Nasdaq. Markets are coming off another solid session yesterday. The Dow jumping, by the way, more than 800 points just yesterday. The S&P and Nasdaq both climbing more than three percentage points themselves. Those two straight days of stock gains coming on the back of a big pullback in bond yields, interest rates. So let's check on the Treasury complex. Right now, 10-year benchmark note yields are just at around 3.71%. The two-year note yield, 4.12%. Let's get a check now on some of the top morning stories here this morning. Silvana Hinao is back with those. Silvana. Hi, Dom. Well, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen throwing cold water on a report she's eyeing an exit from her position. Speaking during a panel event, Yellen told the crowd she plans to stay on as head of the Treasury Department, saying there was no truth to a recent report by Axios of her leaving the Biden administration. That report stated the White House was quietly exploring her replacement and that the outcome of the midterm elections would determine if Yellen stays. Amazon is pausing hiring within one portion of the e-commerce giant. The company confirming to CNBC a New York Times report that it was halting hiring for corporate roles in its retail business. The report saying Amazon instructed recruiters to close all open job postings for those roles in the coming days and recommended canceling some recruiting activities. Amazon is the latest company to reevaluate its hiring plans amid concerns of an economic downturn. And Blackstone is reportedly in talks with Emerson Electric to buy a portion of the company. According to Bloomberg, the deal would involve part of Emerson's commercial and residential solution business assets. The report says the deal, which could be valued between 5 and $10 billion, would depend on how much of the portfolio changes hands, Dom. All right, Silvana now with the latest there. Thank you very much. Yeah. Let's turn now to the oil market. OPEC Plus set to hold what's likely to be an historic meeting. It's first, by the way, in-person meeting in roughly two years. The group is expected to dramatically slash oil production amid a dramatic pullback in prices in recent months. Now, ahead of that meeting, WTI U.S. benchmark prices down half of 1% to $86.10. World benchmark Brent crude futures off about one-third of 1%, $91.46. Brian Sullivan is live at OPEC headquarters in Vienna, Austria, with more on what to expect out of this meeting. And, of course, he's joined by a special guest. Brian. Yeah, I mean, listen, we're down a little bit today, Don, but as you know what, we're up 8 to 10 bucks a barrel in the last couple of sessions on talk about what's going to happen here. I just want to set the stage very quickly. This was supposed to be a virtual meeting. OPEC's been doing these almost Federal Reserve-like virtual meetings. They got... To be honest with you, pretty boring, kind of rubber stamping their deal to get back to pre-COVID levels. All of a sudden, Saturday morning, everybody's phone blows up and they decided to hold the meeting in person. We're all booking flights and flying over here because they expect now something big. So we're here in Vienna, Austria, and one of the people whose phones was blowing up was <laughs> Lee Croft, RBC Capital Markets, CNBC contributor. I mean, the fact that they, listen, it's a beautiful city, so we're happy to be here. But the fact that they brought us here in person 
What does that say to you? I mean, this is not a micro move. The fact that on Saturday this was hastily assembled, we all had to get here, that means that this is a significant production cut. And Brian, as you know, we're hearing numbers like 2 million barrels being cut, potentially a cut running through the end of 2023. So this is a significant production adjustment while we are in the midst of the worst energy crisis in decades. Which we'll get to in just a second because the Russian delegation is expected to be here. Let me ask a different question. Is it at all possible that these leaks of one and a half and two million barrels a day are being used as a little bit of a lever to try to pressure America and maybe Europe to change the sanctions or maybe adjust certain policies we have towards Saudi Arabia and Russia? I mean, Brian, we're down to the wire now. I mean, the discussions was that this was essentially set yesterday. Now, maybe a few things need to be worked out, but everything we're hearing is, is that this cut is coming. now And, and real and not a head fake. To, uh, you, you know what I mean? The carrot and the stick approach. Right. But again, they can adjust production cuts. They have monthly meetings. That is an evolution of OPEC strategy. We don't have to wait six months for the next meeting. So they can adjust based on market dynamics. But again, all signs indicate that we are getting a multi-million barrel day production cut being announced today. Which color me confused because if you think about the fact that Russian barrels are likely going to be going off the market if and when the December 5th sanctions kick in, Beijing announced yesterday that the marathon is back on. I only say that not because I'm interested in track sports, but because it indicates the Chinese economy may finally be reopening. And yet we're talking about a cut. You'd almost think they would add production given those things. I mean, Brian, the interesting question is the market may not react today, but what happens two months from now? What happens if we have this cut go through and then we have the six package of sanctions launch on December 5th, Russian barrels roll off this market, confusion over price caps, Chinese demand potentially coming back? I think this sets up for a significant jump potentially at year end back toward 100 a barrel. Oh, I think that is the mark we're looking at. Come December, if these EU sanctions do in fact launch, if the price cap mechanism works, maybe there's a release valve to move those Russian barrels. But I think there's going to be some initial confusion come December about what these sanctions mean. And you have this OPEC cut that's going to be into the market. And so I think we're being set up again for that $100 Brent price environment. Absolutely. To to me, this is the most sort of bizarre geopolitical event in a while, and I'll tell you why, because obviously we're in Austria. Alexander Novak is not just the energy minister. He is the deputy prime minister, effectively Putin's lieutenant. He's coming to Europe. He's supposed to be here, correct? He's coming to Europe at a time when we have a European energy crisis. By the way, the men and women who live around us, we've talked to them. Their heating bills have doubled, and yet they're coming here. This is a very bizarre and unique setup. I mean, this may be the highest ranking Russian official to show his face in Europe since this war began. And so the optics of having Alexander Novak, who is now under U.S. sanctions as of last Friday, here at the Secretariat when they announced this production cut, all of the signs about the sort of difficult relationship in Europe, you cannot make this up. The United States is clearly not happy about this meeting. They are not happy about the projected cuts. Look, the Financial Times headline this morning, it says Russia and Saudi Arabia expected a cut in defiance of U.S. Is the White House going to react? Are they going to release more barrels from the SPR? Even though it's at 40-year lows, there's still barrels to be released. How do we react to this? Because this is a political 
hit in some ways to the United States? I think the price impact will dictate what the White House response will be. Remember in August when we only had that very small OPEC production increase and everyone thought we're going to have a massive market reaction? There wasn't, and we didn't hear a lot out of the White House. I think the White House commentary will depend on what the price response will be. Halima, it's a pleasure. We're going to go down into that, uh, no stairwell, but we will have the basement. We'll be in the basement, Brian. By the way, you've gotten taller. I, I have gotten taller, Brian, yes. <laughs> Can we show the box? <laughs> All right, so let's do some final thoughts here. Uh, Halima, thank you. We'll see you Thanks, downstairs. Brian. Maybe I get to stand on the box now. All right, uh, guys, here's the, Dom, here's the timing. Uh, the meeting is expected to start at about 8 a.m. New York time, 2 p.m. Vienna time. All signs point to a fairly quick meeting, but again, this is OPEC. Anything can happen. Remember, Mexico held the decision up for over a day a couple of years ago, back when we were in person still. Could be a big cut, one and a half to two million barrels a day that extend their relationship, the declaration of cooperation with Russia as well. So a lot of potential headlines coming out of here at OPEC headquarters in Vienna, Austria. And we'll be here all day. In fact, I'll probably see you at the top of Squawk Box in a few minutes. Tom, back to you. Well, Brian, you and Halima can't give away too many of the secrets for our magic of television here, so we'll, we'll, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see you later on, Brian. Thank you very much to you and Halima. Coming up on the show, Elon Musk sealing the deal on his takeover of Twitter, a look at what may have prompted the Tesla CEO to reverse course, and the big-name investor is set to cash in on this possible closing. We're back after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's check out what's happening right now with regard to the pre-market trade. We mentioned the Dow is implied lower by roughly 230 points, now 273 at this point. Caterpillar, Nike, Travelers, Walt Disney, Procter & Gamble, all some of the Dow laggard so far in trading today. If you take a look at the broader-based S&P 500, which many market professionals like to look at as a better gauge of the overall health of the market, the laggards there are Lumen Technologies down 3%, PG&E down 3%, Norwegian Cruise Line, Carnival, Etsy, each down around 1.5% to 2% as well. So it's a kind of sampling right now of what we're seeing with regard to the real laggards. But remember, many of these stocks have seen some real volatility around this changing narrative around the economy right now. Let's now get to your morning's big money mover. Shares of Twitter are surging after Elon Musk's surprise decision to reverse course and revive his deal to buy the company. Twitter saying Musk plans to close that purchase at his original offer price of $54.20 per share. Sources tell CNBC that deal could happen as soon as Friday. Now, the agreement follows months of legal drama as Musk tried to back out of his initial agreement with both sides, <coughs> excuse me, set to, set to go to trial in just a matter of two weeks, and the deal likely proving to be beneficial for some big-name investors. The Wall Street Journal reporting Carl Icahn amassed a stake in Twitter more, worth more than $500 million in just the past few months. Other investors like Dan Loeb at Third Point also placed bet on Twitter shares in recent months. So for more, let's bring in Tim Higgins, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, CNBC contributor and author of Power Play here. Tim Higgins, I, I, I guess the point being here is this deal was a surprise. What do you think drove it? Well, it looks like Elon Musk blinked in this giant game of chicken, right? If you if you think that over the last few months, this legal drama was all about him trying to get the price down, the price to buy Twitter down, uh, you know, his leverage would have been 
dragging this out for months and months more uh, as Twitter is trying to deal with the deteriorating business, the deteriorating ad market. But the judge in Delaware was sending signals that she wanted this trial to go quickly. She didn't want to allow that to happen. And that was taking away some of his leverage. Legal experts were saying that uh, Elon faced a, a pretty high bar uh, in that courtroom and that Twitter had the upper hand when it came to the the law. So, you know, at the end of the day, it, it appears Elon uh, was, you know, becoming uh, reckoning with the, the reality before him. So so if, if that's the case, I, I mean, even in the early stages, when, when we learned that this was going to be adjudicated in, in, in Delaware Chancery Court, and, and that the potential was there for there to be this kind of uh, at least move to have Twitter acquired by Musk for, for that specific performance clause in that in that deal. If you take a look at this whole picture, the lawyers definitely got a lot more billable hours, but this was maybe a foreseen outcome. Why even go through that in the first place? Was it just about the price or was there something bigger at play? Why throw out all of that laundry, the dirty perhaps, uh, uh, about the bots, the spam, the, the user metrics, how they could have been perhaps overstated. All of that stuff was just a ploy to get the price down. Is, is that what we're thinking right now? Well, Elon Musk, in a lot of ways, is one of the greatest gamblers around. And rolling the dice that Twitter would cave is a pretty big bet. It could have saved him potentially uh, billions of dollars uh, rather than the $44 billion that he is now on the hook to pay. Uh, the other thing, it, gave, it would have given him a, a leaf to, to get out of the deal after perhaps realizing that he was paying uh, way too much uh, for something that valuation had dropped dramatically uh, since he started uh, get, getting involved in buying up Twitter shares. Okay, all right. So, so now let's let's make a, an assumption, and I will just say that you know we're, we're being hypothetical about. It. Let's say this deal goes through, right? He, he buys the company. What's next? What can we expect Twitter to look like? Is it different at all in any way, shape, or form after Elon Musk takes this company over? Well, any company that Elon runs uh, tends to become much like him in his personality, right? When he took over Tesla, it, t- it changed dramatically. He has said in the last few months kind of some of his visions. It's, you know, it's unclear exactly if he's got a, a solid vision or more of an idea where he wants to go. But it seems that he wants to have Twitter be part of a, a super app. That long-held belief in Silicon Valley that there could be one app to rule them all, that it could be a communication tool, a commerce tool, an entertainment tool, something like WeChat in China. Uh, yet that has been something that the likes of Facebook have struggled to do here in the U.S. market because of the power uh, of Apple over its ecosystem, the power of Android over its ecosystem. So that will be the huge challenge ahead uh, for Elon, taking over Twitter and recasting it uh, is a platform uh, that can be uh, ginormous uh, to uh, cover this huge uh, purchase that he's making. I like the Lord of the Rings analogy there. Tim Higgins at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. On deck for the show, real rally or just another, another bear market bounce? Futures right now pointing towards a lower open after two days of solid gains. One of the best starts to a fourth quarter in years. Our market panel makes sense of where stocks may be heading next. And throughout the course of Hispanic Heritage Month, CNBC is celebrating our teammates, our contributors, and friends and colleagues. As we head to break, here is Charles Schwab, Investment Management CEO and Chief Investment Officer, Omar Aguio. Hispanics in the U.S. represent 
powerful economic power with $1.9 trillion in purchasing power. But most importantly, we have a great culture and a great set of traditions. We are very proud of our past, but we also take very serious our responsibility for the shape of the future of this country. Hope you can join us to celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month. I am sure you will learn a lot about our traditions, and who knows, you may be able to pick up a couple of dance moves. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Another busy day ahead on Wall Street, including several economic reports of note. We've got weekly mortgage applications out at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, September ADP employment at 8.15 a.m. Eastern Time, and the final reading of September services PMI at 9.45. September ISM, non-manufacturing PMI at 10 a.m., also keeping an eye on the Kennedy Space Center as a Dragon spacecraft named Endurance is due to launch. And if that wasn't enough, Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic is set to speak this afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern time. So you've got a jam-packed agenda for the day. Back to the markets, an extension of this two-day rally not looking like it's in the cards right now. Futures are indicating a down day for the stock market. The Dow is implied lower by roughly 1%. Same thing for the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 as well. Joining me now is Jeff Mills, Senior Vice President and Chief Investment Officer at Bryn Mawr Trust. He's also a CNBC contributor, often seen on Fast Money. We've also got Jay Hatfield, Founder and Chief Investment Officer at InfraCap as well. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Uh, Maybe, Jeff, we'll start with you first. This is a market right now that is likely going to take a breather today, but it's been a dazzling start to the fourth quarter. It's a seasonably strong time of the market. Should investors be optimistic this Q4? I think it's hard to be, quite honestly. I mean, you could certainly see a bear market rally here, just like we saw over the summer. Um, they're common. That's sort of the, the rule rather than the exception. But I'm trying to look at some things under the surface to give myself some clues as to whether the, the bottom is enduring. Uh, and certainly we've seen what appears to be like momentum uh, Monday, yesterday. But actually looking under the surface from a technical perspective, I'm a little bit concerned that we're not seeing that typical momentum spark we see off durable market lows. Uh, one example the percentage of stocks in the S&P 500 making two standard deviation advances in any single day. Usually off of these big bottoms, we see 50, 60, 70 percent of names doing that. We've seen 10, 20 percent of names doing that. So you're not seeing that thrust off the bottom that we usually see. So definitely looking at other things. But in terms of what the market is telling me, I think that's one good clue. You know, it's interesting, Jay, that, that, that Jeff mentions that uh, there was a, an interesting tweet from Ryan Dietrich, uh, you know, who watches the market a lot from a a market technician standpoint, saying that the 5.7 percent start to Q4 2022 after two days is the best start to a new quarter since the second quarter of 1938. 1938, the best start to a Q4 here for the S&P. This is something now where investors are maybe grappling with this idea that there's more downside to come. But you can't ignore what just happened in the last two days, can you? No. Although, it's a, as you pointed out, it's a huge move in a couple of days. We would, not to get too short-term oriented, think that we're going to be under a little bit of pressure over the next few days because think about all the data. It's all labor-related. And we have a very, very strong labor market because we're coming out of a pandemic. So that's likely to pressure rates and be a short-term negative. But we're quite constructive, not bullish, but constructive about the market, not because of technicals, but fundamentals. Next Wednesday starts earnings season. 
PPI is reported, which could be positive, maybe not yet. And then also our bull thesis is that the Fed's ultra hawkish uh, policy is melting down Europe, which they're going to be slow to perceive. It's almost like their third mandate is to be behind the curve. But you're seeing financial crises emerge and then very weak PMIs. So if Europe melts down, that takes pressure off interest rates, inflation, and allows the Fed to be less hawkish. Okay, so, so that's the pivot argument, right? And maybe, Jeff, I'll turn to you for this one here because Jay brings up an interesting point. A lot of folks I spoke to and a lot of folks out there are saying that, that the market rally, the, the pullback in interest rates is now kind of pricing in this so-called Fed pivot, that they're going to be a little more dovish in the coming months, quarters, and years, that, the, that interest rates may not rise so quickly, that the terminal rate may not be as high as we thought it was going to be. Where exactly did that narrative even come from, given the fact that we don't have that much data supporting a big drop in inflationary pressure? Or maybe it was the JOLTS data from yesterday that showed job openings had been fallen by the biggest pace since the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, and some of the early PMI readings, the prices paid was a little bit lower. There was some dovish surprise from some global central banks. So I think that sort of sparked it. But my guess is in, in talking about the tighter labor market, so you're seeing some good signs relative to what the Fed is looking for. So 1.8 million job openings have come off the table. So that's what the Fed wants to do first. They want to destroy the job openings. Um, so that's good. But look at the quit rate, for example, still extremely low. So they're going to be looking at that sort of tightness. Uh, and you need to see some of that come off before wage growth slows. And that's really the key to inflation. And you're absolutely right. It's, it's the pivot narrative that's driving this. I mean, look at what was up huge yesterday. It was ARC up over six and a half percent. It was these high beta names, people sort of piling in speculatively, thinking rates might drop. Um, but even if you get a little bit of a pause or just a slower pace of heightening, uh, tightening, I just think there, there's too much to contend with here. PMIs are still dropping. Uh, the Fed is still going to keep rates high for a while. And, and my guess is this sort of earnings growth slowdown that we've been speculating about, it's here now. It's not all bad, but Nike, Micron, Meta, CarMax, a lot of these companies talking about a reduction in earnings expectations. Uh, so I think we're actually going to be moving into kind of a proper earnings-driven bear market. All right. So if that's the case, uh, Jay, what are some of the top picks that you have out there? Where, where, where is it attractive to be invested? Well, we've been saying all year long to focus on dividend stocks, um, particularly um, ones that are focused on uh, with U.S. operations. We think actually earnings are going to be resilient for U.S. companies, but not not so much for most internationally focused companies. So energy stocks, uh, preferred stocks are great because they're senior to common, so you have very stable dividends. Um, <clears throat> pipeline companies, utilities, these large cap dividend stocks are the places really to be. You saw Exxon uh, pre-announced positive earnings already this this uh, quarter. So obviously energy companies are going to have tremendous tailwinds. So those kind of old economy, non-tech, boring uh, companies that benefit from emerging from the pandemic. All right. Jeff Mills and Jay Hatfield, thank you, gentlemen, both very much for that. We appreciate it. Now, let's check on what's happening right now with futures, because we have taken a leg lower in just the last 10 or 15 minutes or so. The Dow is now implied lower by over 300 points. The S&P lower by roughly 39 and about 118 points to the downside for the Nasdaq overall. So we'll keep an eye on whether or not we see some of these losses deepen as we head towards the opening bell. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. We'll see you tomorrow.
You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 